going beyond the headlines, getting to the heart of the story. Calgary Today with Joe McFarland on 770 CHQR. Yes, we are going to revisit some of the audio from today's speech from the throne. Uh, Lois Mitchell outlining what Jason Kenney and his UCP government would like to get accomplished over the next uh, session of the legislature. On to today's show. Not only are we going to revisit that audio, but we're going to talk about another story coming out of Calgary today. Uh, Bill Blair in town, former Toronto police chief, now a minister within the Liberal government, talking about cannabis research and some funding being made available. I'm less interested in the funding and the dollar figure because I know at this point in time we're kind of talking about election campaigning, but there are some horses that have left the stable when it comes to um, the legalization of cannabis, correct? And so why is it that we are doing research on something that is now being, that is already legal? Why wouldn't we have done it before? is going to be my number one question, or probably my number two question. I've got a, a couple of other questions I want to get to with Bill Blair, the Minister of Border Security and Crime Reduction. He'll be joining us in just a couple of minutes. Also through the course of the show today, after 4.30, we're going to chat air quality up north, especially with, uh, as Brenda mentioned, the major wildfire north. We had to deal with our own air quality issues over the last couple of summers now. What do we do about it? What do we what do we need to be keeping in mind, especially as the winds start shifting, if they start shifting, that kind of thing? Dr. Joe Vipond over at the University of Calgary is going to join us to talk more about that. How about that story from Aurelio Perry today, in case you've missed it? A little bit of talking about the Idaho stop, you know, that rolling stop for vehicles. I think we all do it. But what about cyclists? Should it be allowed when a cyclist goes through a stop sign that they don't see anybody so they can? Apparently, it's not allowed here in this city. And a city committee saying, maybe that needs to change. Other jurisdictions have done it. Why not us too? Bike Calgary is going to be joining us after 5 o'clock to talk about their reaction to that. After 5.30 today, we're going to talk a little bit of science with Dr. Amy Yu, who has been looking into the differences in... That happened between a man and a woman when it comes to strokes and mini strokes and some interesting research and in how they present, number one, but to their diagnoses. We're going to start things off talking cannabis research with the Minister of Border Security and Crime Reduction, Bill Blair, next here on Calgary Today. All right, let's turn our attention to a story that's been in the news a little bit today, and it's surrounding cannabis research, and in particular, three University of Calgary cannabis research projects getting their share of $25 million-ish in federal cash to study the effects of cannabis use. In town for that announcement was Bill Blair, the Minister of Border Security and Crime Reduction, also former uh, Toronto Police Chief. And and Mr. Blair joins us now on the program to talk about this. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Joe. Uh, Talk about the significance of today from your standpoint and what it really signifies in in the future of cannabis and, and research around it. You know, I think it's really important that we that all public policy should be based on on sound evidence. And unfortunately, in the in the cannabis sector, what we found is because it's had been criminally prohibited for such a long period of time, 
the science was really lacking. And, and so by lifting the criminal prohibition and putting in a regulatory framework for production and distribution, we also created an environment for research. And, and But it's important, you know, to make sure that we provide support to those researchers so that they can do the, 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 the evidence gathering, the analysis, and inform government decision-making and inform Canadians about how they can lower their risk um, as it relates to, to cannabis use generally across the country and how we can all future policy decisions can be based on sound scientific advice. One of the questions that popped up as I read through the announcement today was, are we uh, trying to catch the horse after we've let it out of the stable? Well, and, and I'll say no. It, 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 this drug has been around for well over a century, and, and so we've got a lot of experience with it. But, what, but part of our experience was a lot of Canadians were grossly misinformed, sadly misinformed, by the myths and the anecdotes that often surround cannabis use. And we think good public policy should be based on good evidence. And if we want young people in particular, we want our kids to make healthier, safer, uh, more socially responsible choices with respect to cannabis. You know, just saying no wasn't working. What we really have to do is provide those young people with, with sound scientific evidence and, and fact upon which they can make informed decisions. And the best way to do that, and I had an opportunity to do it today at the University of Calgary. It was extraordinary. I sat down with a whole bunch of young students who, who crossed and intersected a number of different you know, cohorts within that student population, from first-year undergraduates to fourth-year doctoral students. And, and we got an opportunity to listen to their perspectives and their concerns with respect to, to cannabis. You know, it really affects their society and their futures, and, and they're very thoughtful about it. And, and engaging with young people on, on what they see as the need for more and better information really helps us understand the work that needs to be done. You mentioned the myths and the and that that are still out there. What do you think is the number one misconception or the one thing that you hope campaigns that uh, come out in, in the next few weeks and months and years uh, try to dissolve? You know, one of the two things I, I would mention to that, Joan, one of them has to, has to do with its use among young people. And I, I think a lot of young people saw this substance, you know, it was recognized as medicine, it was organic. A lot of them were not aware of the potential risks and harms to their development and to their potential. Um, and, and so making sure that they're well-informed about that is a really important part of the work that we were doing so that our young people can have, you know, factual, fact-based information, um, not based on myth and fear, but rather on, on the truth to help, make, help them make informed decisions about their own choices. The second thing that, that uh, we found very, very significant is right across the country, there was a lot of misconception about the risk that cannabis use represented for, to those who were operating motor vehicles. Now, we actually did some studies and we asked young people about their experience with cannabis. And some of them said to us they didn't believe it had any impact on their ability to drive, which is completely nonsense. But they, some of them, and, and here's the real nonsense, actually thought it could improve the, the, their ability to drive. And, and we needed to make sure that those myths were displaced and, 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 and disputed simply because it was encouraging young people to make very dangerous choices for themselves and for others. And, and so, you know, making sure that they've got the facts about the risks of impaired by, by drugs and the fact that now, because we've got new leg, reg, leg regulations, we've got new tools for the police and new authorities, new access to technologies, the likelihood of being caught and held accountable for those decisions has also increased very significantly for young people. So we, would, we just want them to make safer, healthier choices. And the right way to do that is to provide them with fact-based information that they find trustworthy and that, that will help inform them to make, make, make better choices for themselves and for others. What do you hope comes from the uh, research and the money that is that was announced today when it comes especially to the uh, effects on health care? 
And I use the example of, uh, especially here in Alberta, what's been really well documented over the last uh, number of months since cannabis was legalized was the number of older people who have decided, hey, I'm going to take this, give this a shot and see whether or not it helps with some of my uh, ails that I have to deal with. You know, I think there's some very strong anecdotal evidence that, that there is therapeutic value in the use of cannabis for certain uh, conditions. But at the same time, and doctors have told us that they want some scientific evidence that, to back up that anecdotal evidence. They want to be able to make sure that they're, they're authorizing prescribing for their patients substances that will actually have a beneficial uh, impact, but also they want to know how to advise their patients on how to do it safely. And for example, you know, I think we need to make sure that there is evidence, and it's one of the projects we're funding, so that women of childbearing age or women who have, are, are pregnant or have recently delivered children or are breastfeeding, we want to make sure that there's good scientific evidence so that they can make safer choices and healthier choices for themselves and for their kids in the use of cannabis during that period of, of, of either gestation of the child or shortly after its birth to, to make sure that that's done in a healthier and safer way. We also want to make sure that, that doctors have, have better information to share with their patients about what the th- potential therapeutic benefits are, but also some, what some of the contraindications and, and risks are to cannabis use. So that if, if people, you know, older adults choose to use this substance to treat particular conditions and ailments, they can do it in a more informed way, but also in a safer and healthier way. I think that's the obligation we have to all Canadians to make sure that we have the best evidence available, the best scientific research, and that the Canadians can be well informed about the choices that they're making. We also want to make sure that what's available for their consumption is of known potency, of known purity, and known providence so that, so that they know it's regulated, it's tested, um, it's, it's subject to Health Canada oversight and regulatory control so that they can be safer in the choices that they make. Is it your view that by legalizing marijuana, this actually helped in terms of being able to do proper analysis and proper research on the drug itself rather than trying to use anecdotal evidence based off of the illegal market? Yeah, I have to tell you, what, 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 what criminal cell is untested, unregulated, unsafe? It was a bit of a crapshoot for consumers because whatever they were consuming was of unknown potency. And they didn't know if it had been adulterated with dangerous chemicals or even other drugs. And, and also, because we were in an environment of criminal prohibition, there was no way for science, scientists to do longitudinal studies. And it was a very difficult conversation for teachers and parents and doctors to have with young people about lower-risk decisions around cannabis when, when we were talking about a criminalized substance. And I finally, and I think this is very important to the announcement we made today, by, by lifting the criminal pro- prohibition and instead replacing a failed criminal prohibition with really comprehensive set of regulations that controls every aspect of production, distribution, and consumption of cannabis, we create an environment where research can take place. It is now possible for scientists and doctors to conduct longitudinal studies because it, you're, you're not trying to study somebody who's committing a crime, but rather someone who's using a regulated substance of known potency where, where they have health information and where that can be done in a, in a socially responsible way. And so, and so I think that's, a, that's one of the real benefits of strictly regulating cannabis as opposed to criminally prohibiting it, in that we've created a, a space in Canada today for research. And I will tell you, researchers from around the world are now inquiring about conducting research in Canada because we've created a safe and, and, and appropriate place for that research to take place. One of the questions that always comes up, Minister, whenever we talk legalized cannabis is, has this a, is cannabis a gateway drug? Is it still viewed as such? 
And beyond that, have we opened up a can of worms, especially when we talk about the opioid crisis and others that we're really having a hard time wrapping our heads around? Can I tell you, I believe we've, we've closed a bit of a can of worms because the only place that our kids could, and, all, and a huge number of our kids, we had the highest proportion of cannabis use among our kids of any country in the world. And the, and the only place they could get that, the cannabis that they were using was from an illegal source, which means they had to go to the local drug dealer. That local drug dealer is only motivated by profit, would happily sell them other more dangerous drugs. And, and now, as a, as a result, we, we've, I think we've implemented very sensible restrictions that prohibit the, production, the, the possession, consumption, and purchase of cannabis by young people. We've created new criminal offenses for those criminals who would exploit our kids. And, and at the same time, you know, we, we have, we've created an opportunity to provide our young people with, with evidence-based information upon which they make, can make healthier and safer choices. By the way, it's important for all Canadians to remember it still remains a serious criminal offense to illegally produce and illegally sell cannabis in this country. So those operating outside of the regulations are still committing a crime, still subject to law enforcement, and still subject to serious criminal sanctions. And, and at the same time, um, we have also introduced new penalties to help take the profit away from that illicit activity and created a new offense of, of, of selling to kids that, that, that contains a very high uh, penalty fourteen, a uh, maximum of fourteen years for those who would commit the crime of selling cannabis to our kids. Our first and, and highest priority is is to better protect our children, to displace that illicit crime, and to protect the health of Canadians. And I think, as a result of what we have done and the work that we are ongoing, that is ongoing right across the country, we are moving forward in achieving those aims. Minister, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much, Joe. Minister Bill Blair joining us in the program talking about some cannabis research funding announced today. But beyond that is, and this is a, a much bigger discussion other than, hey, let's do research. And that is the, the fascination point for me happens to be around people that I've known my whole life or around my whole life who I would have thought never in a million years would they go towards cannabis for health problems. And they are now singing the praises and how much better they're feeling about it. It's a topic of conversation I want to continue having over the course of the next few weeks, only because it does seem like the, the tide is turning around the perception surrounding cannabis, as long as it's not laced with some of the you know opioids and stuff like that that are, are really getting to the, the crux of the addiction aspect of it. We'll continue this discussion for sure in the days and weeks ahead. You heard a little bit of it during Rob's show and wanted to revisit it for those of you who are just getting into the car now. The new Alberta government has set its first legislature sitting in motion with a promise to repeal the provincial carbon tax, Bill 1, roll back the uh, corporate tax and cut red tape. Lieutenant Governor Lois Mitchell outlining the priorities in today's throne speech and outlined the bills that are going to be coming in not too distant future. Bill 1 as promised, will be the Carbon Tax Repeal Act. In providing $1.4 billion in tax relief, it'll make everything more affordable for Albertans. If needed, my ministers will take legal action to protect Albertans from a federal carbon tax and to support other provinces doing the same. Bill 2 will be the Open for Business Act. It will strengthen the rights of Alberta workers within unions, promote job creation for young Albertans, and retain recent advancements in compassionate leave. 
This will be followed in the autumn by further labour reforms to protect workers and help employers create more jobs. This spring, my government will also introduce Bill 3, the Job Creation Tax Cut Act. It will lower the tax burden on employers by one-third, from 12% to 8%. This will give Alberta businesses the lowest tax rate in Canada and among the lowest rates in North America, renewing Alberta as a magnet for job-creating investment. Economists estimate that this reduction will generate 55,000 new full-time jobs and increase the size of our economy by $12.7 billion. My government will bring forward Bill 4, the Red Tape Reduction Act. This will provide the means to lower the regulatory burden on Alberta's economy by one-third, reducing costs, speeding up approvals, and freeing job creators to get more Albertans back to work. Estimates for the interim supply of public services will be presented to an Appropriation Act to be followed by a full budget this fall. That budget will be informed by the report of the Fiscal Review Panel, chaired by former Saskatchewan Finance Minister Janice McKinnon, which will make recommendations on how to restore balance to our province's finances so that we can stop encumbering future generations with debt. My government will also engage in widespread public consultations on how best to end deficit spending while protecting frontline public services. My government will also present a Tax Statutes Amendment Act. My government will propose amendments to the Municipal Government Act. This will enable, these actually will enable municipalities to use property tax incentives to attract investment and create jobs. All sounds good. The only issue is brought up by one texter that my government, my government, my government, don't forget, and I hope this government doesn't forget it, this is our government. It's Calgary Today on 770 CHQR. It's a story that has garnered a lot of attention here on this radio station over the last few hours. Uh, The city, uh, city committee actually, the Transportation and Transit Committee, asking council to start a conversation with the province to examine changes to the Traffic Safety Act to make it easier for bicycles to travel on city roadways. And one such change is to allow bicycles to treat stop signs like a yield sign. But that move would need the okay from the province. Joining us now for some reaction to today's story from Bike Calgary President Gary Millard. Joining us now on the program. Gary, thanks so much for the time today. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Your reaction first off to today's discussion uh, within the the halls of City Hall. First of all, the fact that this discussion is taking place is fantastic. I think it's really important for the city to make sure that we consider all modes of transport and that people have safe and accessible options to do that. Cycling, obviously, is one of those that we're happy to hear council discussing. Why is it that Calgary, even in the story that Aurelio wrote up today, is that the Idaho stop is nothing new to uh, jurisdictions? We've seen it all across uh, different areas before. Why is it that Calgary has been lagging behind here? 
Well, I think uh, you solve the problems that are most urgent and um, making sure that cyclists had safe and accessible infrastructure was a priority for the city. And once that got built, we found a lot of people started riding. Ridership has gone up across the city. And so now we're looking at the other barriers and saying, what's stopping people from being comfortable on the roads? What's stopping them from making the choice to, uh, to make cycling a choice for active transport? Was this a topic that was being talked about within the, the, the community? It's always been thought about for, for a while, ever since it was raised, uh, you know, again, probably most famously as the Idaho stop law mm-hmm. uh, many years ago. So it had been discussed, but not seriously brought forward. It, it hadn't been sort of the, the big barrier along the way. But with the opportunity to revise the transportation bylaws, um, this was actually brought up by council and the cycling community said, this is great. This, this brings us up to the current age of, of the discussion of how to get cycling into day-to-day life. And from all accounts, from a cycling community standpoint, is this is something that uh, is needed in the grand scheme of things? Well, needed, perhaps not. Uh, people will ride regardless of you know the, the details of the the transportation bylaws. But uh, by creating a, a regulation that enables safer and more accessible cycling, and, and the safer is a very interesting part of that one we can touch on later, mm-hmm. but uh, by removing one of the barriers or lessening that a little bit, it would be great to see more people get out riding, and that only not only helps the cyclists, but it actually helps the transportation network by uh, easing the burden on, on the roads um, through motor vehicle traffic. And you mentioned it was the safety aspect, and that was a point of contention, I know, for at least one councillor being Sean Chu, talking about uh, the law and order perspective, but also from a standpoint of, hey, who's liable in case somebody misses that stop sign and goes rolling through it and and ends up having a collision with a vehicle? So how do you balance that uh, safety aspect of it when you talk about a rolling stop or an Idaho stop? Well, I think the key thing to remember here is that Nobody is proposing a change in yielding of the right of way. So right now, the the rules are clear when you come to a stop sign, who has the right of way to proceed? Uh, And the only nuance or detail we're dealing with is whether or not the vehicle has to come to a complete stop or whether, in the case of bicycles, you can approach slowly enough that you can see who has the right of way, you can grant the right of way while rolling forward at at a walking speed or even slower, and then when you get your, your chance to move, your, your feet are already on the pedals. You already have a little bit of momentum. And so you can actually clear the intersection faster. And the interesting thing is the statistics are clear, uh, somewhat counterintuitively, but you end up with lower incident rates, less accidents at intersections involving cyclists when, when you have that sort of regulation. And there's no uncertainty in the eyes of the law about who has the right of way. It's, you know, that the party that, that gets to move first is still covered under the existing regulations. Is this thought of the same way as almost for vehicles? And I make this sort of jokingly, but at the same time, you think about how many vehicles come to a rolling stop and and nobody bats an eyelash. And so is there a thought that maybe, hey, both of these are vehicles so we can treat them the same way? Well, there's there's a couple of things to consider. First of all, the debate over stop signs versus yield signs. Um, It's very hard to have a a four-way yield conceptually, but Certainly, when you come to key intersections, there are many places in the world that almost exclusively use yield signs as opposed to stop signs, and it's very clear who has the right of way. It just allows a smoother flow of traffic. So that's one discussion I think that we could take a look at. Mm-hmm. Um, now, in terms of, of the four-way stop or a multiple stop, um, the, the 
the reality is a, a bicycle going from you know, the cyclist standing still with a foot on the ground to effectively clearing the intersection is a slightly different mechanical issue than putting your foot on the gas and rolling forward on a car. So mm-hmm. the opportunity here is to create a, a regulation that allows bicycles to integrate more smoothly and efficiently into the flow of traffic. And that makes a safer interaction for everybody, and it should make it a more pleasant interaction. And, okay. and like you say, already, you know, when I observe multiple stops, and I have four-way stops, three-way stops, most people end up rolling through them, most motor vehicles, and it doesn't create issues as long mm-hmm. as people yield the right of way in the right sequence. Paying attention to one another is also a big key in the grand scheme of things. Gary, I do appreciate the time this afternoon. Thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you. Have a great evening. You as well. Gary Millar, the president at Bike Calgary, as he responds to today's council committee decision. And yes, it is going to go to the full council after a vote of seven to three. One of the, I'll call it a beat. Our reporters used to go by the beat. So you had the crime beat and the education beat and the health beat. One of the beats that I haven't touched on a lot lately that I would like to get back onto the swing of things is health care. And not just the usual, hey, let's talk wait times, let's talk this, that, the other thing. But what about research and some of those storylines were coming out of our post-secondary institutions here in our province and also just some of our healthcare centers in this province. I want to shed a little bit of light on one such uh, research project that's been going underway and actually it involves a few different Canadian uh, institutions including the University of Calgary's coming School of Medicine as well as the Hotchkiss Brain Institute at the CSM. Uh, one of the authors of that was Dr. Shayla Coots and the co-author, the study lead author was Dr. Amy Yu, a stroke neurologist at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Center and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. Dr. Yu joins us now to talk more about one of her latest research projects. Dr. Yu, thank you so much for joining us this afternoon. Thank you, Joe. It's my pleasure. Let's talk about your research and what did you find when it comes to men and women and strokes? Well, in this research, what we were really interested in seeing whether women and men present differently when they come in with symptoms that they think it's stroke. Um, and in, in, um, in research, it's often thought that perhaps men and women present differently. Women may have atypical symptoms and it's not really recognized as stroke. And we found that actually they present with very similar symptoms, but yet in our study, we found that women were less likely to be diagnosed with stroke. So is there a reason or a rationale why there was no uh, prescription, not prescription, there was no finding of stroke and is sort of that disconnect there? Yeah, well, that, that's the question. That's the next question to answer. Um, it could be very well that in our study, there were just simply fewer women with strokes. But what was interesting is that when we followed women for 90 days, we found that within the next 90 days, the women and men were at equally risk of having another stroke or heart attack. So it really raises the question um, about whether or not there are missed opportunities to prevent uh, stroke and heart attack and vascular events in women. Is there also a missed opportunity in terms of uh, getting the word out there about how a woman feels with a stroke versus how a man feels with a stroke? Or is there a difference? And even beyond that is, can you self-diagnose that way? 
Well, yeah, one thing that, um, one message that I think it's important for the public to know is that the brain is so complex and uh, stroke symptoms, the common one are, you know, face droopiness, arm weakness, speech trouble, um, but people are so different and different people can just feel different things. Um, I think more and more we're looking at women and men differently or, or not looking at them differently, but uh, we're recognizing that it's important to understand that women and men describe symptoms differently or maybe respond uh, differently to certain medications or treatments. And so this study is really highlighting that there may be some differences in um, the risk of having another event mm-hmm. after that first one. And, and that's got to be a concern, especially for some, when you mentioned that women are not being diagnosed right away. And so if they've got a, if they have this similar uh, possibility of having another stroke or a heart attack within 90 days and they don't know that it's even on the radar, that's got to be a cause for concern. Well, so you're absolutely correct. A stroke is a medical emergency for both men and women, and it's important to diagnose it so that um, the causes of it can be addressed and can be treated to prevent another larger one from happening. And again, it's not clear in our study whether it's because after one stroke, women are more likely to have another one, and is that why we're seeing this difference in diagnosis, but the the risks are the same? Um, or is there a, a possibility of uh, underdiagnosis in women? So that's that's something that um, I think calls for more studies. When it comes to the symptoms, are there any differences between men and women? And, and for those who, uh, are there, I know there's a lot of misconceptions out there, so maybe are, are there some that are uh, common amongst everybody? Well, yeah, so the common symptoms of stroke are weakness, speech problems, vision problems, trouble seeing, um, but then um, there are these so-called atypical symptoms of stroke that may include confusion, um, trouble walking, uh, feeling dizzy or having a headache. And what we find in our study is that women and men are equally likely to have these atypical symptoms of stroke. Doctor, I wanted to add, touch base just on the future and what you have planned in terms of this uh, continuing your research on this front. I think what's important to, number one, recognize the difference in diagnosis, to quantify the difference, and then that can really just generate hypotheses on understanding why are these differences there. Um, Are there differences in um, sex and gender bias? Are we interpreting symptoms differently in terms of physician interpreting the patient symptoms or a patient describing symptoms differently? Are women having different coexisting conditions that are different than men? Um, Are their risks different after having a stroke? So there are just so many more questions to answer. Mm -hmm. And you're looking to get some of those answers or perhaps at least get a few brains together. I know you're in Italy right now. The European Stroke Organization Conference is happening there. Uh, Talk a little bit about just uh, being able to share some of those ideas and how significant it is in this line of research. Yeah, the the conference is ongoing. Um, there, ha- the the scientific content here has been amazing, and uh, just ex- exchanging these ideas and 
doing interviews like that with you. It's it's getting the message out that uh, women and men may have differences in risk um, and that, number two, women and men um, may both have atypical symptoms and to recognize them. And if you don't feel like yourself, if you feel different, if you, you're worried about the strokes, then seek medical attention because it is a medical emergency. Absolutely. Dr. Yu, thank you so much for joining us and giving us a little insight into your research and uh, all the best in your travels. Thank you so much. It was my pleasure. And like I said, if you've got a health-related story that you'd like to share with me, by all all accounts, uh, drop me a line on social media. You can also do that via email. Head to 770CHQR.ca. Uh, you should be able to find my bio in there and where you can send me a note. If not, I think it's joe at 770CHQR.ca. Send me my, my operator cord says, send, me, send him money, too. Okay? If, if you win the lottery... And you want to shed, you know, if you can spare a few bucks, hey, why not? Uh, on that, like I said, uh, any kind of news tips, that kind of thing, or any kind of inspirational stories you want to tell, that kind of thing, by all means, drop me a line whenever, wherever, uh, especially on social media. Thank you so much for downloading today's podcast. Do me a huge favor and leave a rating and a comment. And you can always hit me up on Twitter as well. Just follow me at Calgary Today. 